0: Acts chapter 18 18, will be starting with verse 1. We are going to spend some time in the notes to start with before we read the passage because I need to build some context. Uh, We're going to do a little review of what we've been talking about, but we're going to we're going to put it together so that you can see the frame of mind that Paul is in when chapter 18 begins, because that's going to give us the context we need to understand this passage. So Let's look at our notes and let's review what we've learned about Paul. So number one, in your notes, under context, Paul is called to a new and wonderful missionary adventure. And I chose the word adventure because I'm sure that when Paul had the dream and got the word and was sent on a new direction into new territory, he saw it as an adventure. His original plan was just to head out and visit the churches he had been to before, do a little check-in, greet them, encourage them, preach a little bit, and then come back and continue on with his ministry. He got part way through, not even that far into the journey. He had the dream and it said, Don't don't go south, go north, head to Macedonia, there I have plans for you there, and I'm sure he was all excited as every missionary ever was when they left home to head to the mission field. Expecting everything to go wonderfully, for doors to swing open, for them to come over the mountaintop and the people below to rise and say, blessed are those who come. May I kiss your feet for bringing me the good news of Christ. Uh, Just expecting wonderful things to happen as every pastor has it, coming to a new church, as every youth pastor has, starting a youth group, as every person who's ever ministered in in an official capacity, in a volunteer capacity, they come in excited. Paul was excited for his adventure, no doubt about it. But number two, Paul sees Lydia and her whole family saved in Philippi. Remember that, Acts chapter 16, the whole family gets saved. There's not even enough Jewish men who are willing to meet together to have a synagogue. So there was less than ten Jewish men in the city of Philippi who were willing to meet together as a congregation, so they had no synagogue. Those who wanted to meet gathered by the river and had unofficial meetings. That's where Paul found Lydia. He shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with her. She believed and was saved and her whole family. A great beginning. Very exciting. It should be the start of wonderful things. But shortly after, just right around the corner, within a couple of days, shortly after, Paul is arrested, beaten, and put in jail. The tables turned quickly. Things weren't going as well. But then in jail, God gives Paul a miracle, which leads to the salvation of the jailer and his whole family. So there's a purpose for the being beaten and being put in jail. And maybe things are going to turn around now. But again, shortly after, Paul is forced out of town. He gets to say a few words to the the people in Lydia's home, and then he has to leave town. So it's up, then it's down, then it's up, then it's down. He arrives in Thessalonica, number three in your notes. Paul sees a pretty good response from his initial preaching. There's some Jews, a large number of Greeks, And quite a few prominent women, we discussed all those groups, they were saved. So another good start. We have good ministry taking place. It's uh, the horizon, things are looking good. But again, shortly after, immediately almost after, jealous Jews formed a mob and instigated a riot to try to force Paul to stop preaching in their town. When they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they arrested and find some of the new believers instead. And as a result, the new believers in Thessalonica smuggled Paul out of town at night. That's the word the Bible used, smuggled. They snuck him out of town and took him to Berea. So a great start again, but ends in him having to sneak out of town. Number four, in Berea, Paul's preaching results in many Jews. Greeks and prominent women being saved. It seems to be working according to plan. The Jews are responding more than the rest. Others are responding also. Paul has finally found a group of Jews he can work with. But, when the Jews from Thessalonica find out, they came to Berea to try to go after Paul again. So again, Paul was escorted out of town for his own safety. This time he wasn't as much snuck out of town in the cover of darkness, but he was escorted for his protection. He had an entourage that took him out of town so he couldn't be beaten or arrested or attacked. They took him to Athens, which is number five. In Athens, Paul had great opportunities to speak to Jews, God-fearers, philosophers, and the city's elite. Again, the excitement would be there. There's more people to speak to more groups to speak to more opportunities to speak i'm not i'm not just in the synagogue now i have all these greeks i've even been invited to speak at this at this upper echelon of thinkers this is great but as it were not many responded there were a few but not many and paul moved on to corinth this is where we pick up the story in in chapter 18, so just a few more things in our notes. When Paul arrived in Corinth, he was weak, fearful, and trembling. How do I know that? Because in First Corinthians chapter 2, he says, When I arrived in Corinth, I was weak, fearful, and trembling. Why was he weak? Uh, probably tired from traveling, sneaking out of town at night. Um, always being attacked and harassed, probably did mentally fatigued, physically fatigued. He was weak. He was fearful. What are they going to do here? Are they going to beat me again? Are they going to arrest me again? Are they going to do something worse? Are they going to run me out of town? Are they going to are they going to slander me? What are they going to do here? And then trembling. This is a word that's kind of hard to define. It's not trembling from fear because it's separated. What does the trembling mean? And, and a lot of people think this just means he was sick from from the beatings or or from the this basically the overactivity things like that. Trembling, weak, fearful, and trembling—that's how he arrived in Corinth. Uh, number seven about verse five, which we'll read in a minute. About verse five, Paul was under distress and persecution. How do we know that? Because in First Thessalonians three seven. It says that when Timothy arrived at the report about the Thessalonians, I, he was distressed and persecuted. So we know at this right at this time he was weak, fearful, trembling. He was distressed and under persecution. So that's how he arrived in Corinth. Now, number eight, Corinth itself was a city of perversion, a city of perversion. The reference there, First Corinthians five one through eleven. That's where Paul addresses people in the church who are sinning sexually, and he says in ways that not even the pagans think of. But in Corinth, it was so not out of the ordinary that people in the church didn't even really see it as a big deal. And Paul had to say, hey, this is a big deal. Christians don't live like this. We don't act like this. You need to be different than everyone else. And sometimes, even today, we we let sins into the church and we don't see them as a big deal because it's so common elsewhere. And we need to watch that. But this is a perversion going on in the church, and this is in the church that's been established. Think of what it was like outside the church. Uh, Corinth held the temple of Artemis, and and the famous thing about the temple of Artemis is that they they maintain a... A roster or a regiment of female prostitutes that numbered a thousand that had a thousand female prostitutes and, and they went out every day to do their work and it was part of their worship and probably ways they collected money and whatnot that was that was part of being in Corinth. If you lived outside of Corinth, the name Corinth was a slang word for drunkard or prostitute, so in some areas. If somebody says, oh, you're a Corinthian, they meant you're a drunkard. They meant that you drink too much. That's just the way you are. It, and they stereotyped Corinth. I'm sure they weren't all that way. But the stereotype was that if you're from Corinth, you drink too much. In other places, because of the um, prostitutes of, of the temple of Artemis, it was a slang word for prostitution. So the context would determine what they meant, but if you were called a Corinthian, or if you were accused of Corinthianizing, that was a bad thing, and that was the reputation that Corinth had. Uh, think of Sodom and Gomorrah; how that those names became synonymous with perversion. So, in various places around, that was how Corinth was known, and this is where Paul came to, and this is where he set up a church. This is where he arrived at chapter 18, verse 1. This is the city he arrived in. And then number 9, when the Jews did not respond to his teaching, this is a little bit later in the story, but we're going to read it today. When the Jews did not respond to his teaching, he lashed out and quit. He says, that's it, I quit. I'm done. I ain't, I'm not talking to the Jews anymore. I'm tired of the Jews, they don't listen. I'm going to go talk to the, the, the Greeks and the Gentiles and forget the Jews. I and mean, that's almost literally what he said. That's what he said in so many words. We'll read about that. But it just goes to show where he was at. He was at the brink of frustration. And then when the Jews didn't respond, he crossed the brink of frustration. And he lashed out a little bit. So down at the bottom of the page, it says, At this point in time, and that's the beginning of Acts 18. At the beginning of Acts 18, Paul was discouraged. Discouraged from being run out of town, mistreated, Arrested, beaten, all these things. He was discouraged. It wasn't working like it was supposed to. It wasn't working out well. It really didn't seem like God was protecting him very much. He was riding a roller coaster of emotion up and down, up and down, up and down. He was alone because uh, Timothy and Silas stayed behind in Athens at this point in time. So his ministry partners weren't even there. So he was alone. And he was frustrated. Now, you can probably identify with these things. We have been discouraged. We've had a roller coaster of emotion. We have felt all alone and we have been frustrated. If you've ever been involved in ministry, you have felt these things in ministry. You are not immune from these things in ministry. It's probably a guarantee that at some point as you serve God, you will be discouraged, emotional, alone, and frustrated. So it's nice to know in a way that Paul got there too but it's better to find out what happened how he dealt with it. It is possible at this same time that he also suffered from sickness and or injury. Maybe he was sick because of an injury. So we have that going on. We're not certain of that but it seems to be plausible. And right now Paul needs God like no other time since his salvation. I mean this is then We're at the point of, of a derailed ministry. We're at the point of burnout, we like to call it. We're, we're at the point of frustration, throwing in the towel, coming home, maybe regrouping and starting over. We're, we're at that point in time. So, understanding where Paul's at, let's read Acts 18, 1 through 11. It says, After this, this is after he was um, escorted out of Berea. After this, I mean Athens, Paul left Athens... Excuse me, escorted out of Berea, didn't see a lot of converts in Athens. So after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So no notice what's going on here. So this couple, Aquila and Priscilla have been exiled, if you will, or run out of town, kicked out of Rome, because the emperor at the time, Claudius, said no Jews are allowed here. So they had to leave. They had to leave their home, and they had to go somewhere else. So they wound up in Corinth. It says, Paul went to see them. So he met this fellow, talked to him a little bit, and it says he went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now, I want to just mention the word tent maker. Uh, that's, that's become very common. It's not an incorrect term, but it's not a fully correct term. Paul was a leather worker. And, and these folks were leather workers. Now, leather workers made tents. All leather workers would make tents, but not all tent makers were leather workers. So, he was more than just a tent maker. He worked with leather. That's what the kind of the term indicates. But, very well could have been making lots of tents. Because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So he found common ground with them and actually stayed with them. Number, letter, uh, verse four. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in a synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he worked to pay his bills and then on the Sabbath, he preached. That was what he was doing for three, three weeks or every, every, every Sabbath. Verse five. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Remember, they had been left behind. They would actually been sent to two different places. Silas went back to Philippi, and Timothy went to Thessalonica. They were sent to kind of check in on them, and now they've arrived back. So in verse 5, there's a change that takes place. Paul was basically on his own, living with Aquila and Priscilla, uh, working his craft in order to make a living. When, Paul and, or excuse me, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. How did he need to earn a living in verse 1-4 through and then in verse 5 exclusively preach? No longer working as a tent maker. What happened, and we read about it in other books, we read about it in uh, Philippians and in Thessalonica, two things. Silas showed up from philippi with an offering the offering that he mentions two or three times this is exactly when he showed up with the offering and the offering was grand enough that he was able to stop working and concentrate on preaching so it really was the change between him supporting himself and being able to be a fully supported missionary so it was probably enough money to get them started and then they could survive on donations and it was enough for all of them to, to work together as a team. So Silas brought the offering, and Timothy brought a report from Thessalonica. And his report was very positive. His re- report was, hey, Paul, they're doing really good. There's a lot of good things happening. That work was not in vain. Yeah, we had to, we had to get out of there, but they've stuck with it. They're serving God well. So Paul was able to devote himself to preaching. Verse six, but when they opposed, when they opposed Paul, okay, testifying the Jews that Jesus was Messiah. But when they, the Jews, opposed Paul, and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, "Your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles." So this shaking out his clothes, that was. uh, kind of a reference to in the old days when the Jews would leave a city that wasn't a Jewish city or the Jews left a city that didn't treat them well they would shake their shoes shake the dust off their shoes symbolically saying, I don't want anything from this city to follow me not even the dirt off your streets and it was them saying, I don't want anything to do with you and so Paul kind of overemphasized it he didn't just shake his shoes, he shook his clothes And said, "I don't even, I don't even want your stench on me." And he was saying that to the Jewish people. So he lashed out a little bit. You could say he threw a little fit. He he threw a little fit and he said some things. In verse seven, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. So picture it. He he says this. He storms out, goes next door where a Greek person lives, and basically says, "If you want to hear about Jesus." Come to the Gentiles' house. And, and to a Jew, that's a big deal, to go into the home of a Gentile. And he says, I'm not, I'm not coming to your synagogue anymore. You want to hear about Jesus? You come over here. I'll be in this Greek's house. And what's the next thing we read? Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. The synagogue leader, who just saw and heard Paul do this, believed in the Lord and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. Now that doesn't mean that God right now has many believers in the city. It means that God has many people in the city for paul to speak to keep on speaking don't be silent i have many people in this city that still need to hear and he said i'm going to protect you verse 11 so paul stayed in corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of god so paul starts off quite discouraged he and several things happened to him and and i want to answer the question second page in your notes back to your notes What did God do to minister to Paul? Paul is frustrated. He's lonely. Things aren't going as planned. He's having to to work and and all these things. And and, and what is God going to do? Because God called him, right? The title of the sermon is God doing what God does so Paul can do what Paul does. God called Paul to do things and now God is going to help Paul accomplish them. What did he do? Well, number one, he gave him friends. He gave him friends. Oftentimes, when we're discouraged and alone and, and, and feeling like things aren't going like they're supposed to, friends are a way that God provides comfort and direction and encouragement. So, for Paul, A, he gave him Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, uh, imagine the conversation. Well, let's continue the line. Now, they're from Rome, they were tent makers. And they were mature believers. Uh, the fact that they were from Rome gave them common conversation. They were kicked out of a city. Paul had been kicked out of a city. They were kicked out because they were Jews. Paul had been kicked out because he believed in Jesus as a Messiah. They were tent makers. He was a tent maker. They had a common trade. They had, they had business they could discuss, technique they could discuss. They could sit around a table and, and work the leather and have conversations. So they had a, a, a common activity. And Priscilla and Aquila were also mature believers. We find that out from other places, but they're mature believers. They're already believing in Jesus the Messiah. They're already growing. So maybe the conversation was something like Paul walks up and says, Hey, how you doing today? "Um, I'm Paul. Yeah, I'm I'm Aquila. This is my wife Priscilla. Oh, that's cute. Your name's Ryan. How about that? "Um, Where are you guys from? We're from Rome. How in the world did you get to Corinth from Rome? Well, you know, Claudius made the decree we had to leave. Wow, was that hard? Yeah, we had to leave our, all of our property. We had to leave our home. We had to leave our friends. We came here, and it's been rough here. This isn't a great place either. But uh, we're here to serve God. Oh, you serve God? I also serve God. I'm here to preach Jesus as a Messiah. That's great. We also believe Jesus is the Messiah. Come to our house. Let's continue this conversation. Oh, you need a place to work? Live with us. You can work with us. They became friends. Aquila and Priscilla filled a social need that Paul had someone to talk to, to hang out with to to be around who were like minded in many ways God gave them those kind of friends B, he also brought Silas and Timothy back into the picture returning from Philippi and returning from Thessalonica so he brought his ministry partners back so now Paul has Aquila and Priscilla and Silas and Timothy now he's got a group of people One group that's more friends he can relax with, and one group that's more partners in ministry that he can work with, and then over time they start overlapping, okay? Uh, Silas and Timothy were already friends, and Aquila and Priscilla became part of the ministry. So a social need was met. God gave him friends. Number two, God gave them, because it's now a group, he gave them moral and financial support. They needed moral support. Morale was low. How did God provide that? Well, A, let's talk about the financial first. A, Silas brought an, op- an offering from the church in Philippi which supported the ministry. And think of Lydia. Lydia was a prominent Greek woman. She was probably quite wealthy and she probably had wealthy friends. And as she shared the gospel and, and her friends accepted Christ, they would have had a resource that God needed to transfer over to Paul and his group. And she was probably the ringleader. We have no evidence of that, but it just makes sense. But from the church in Philippi, a large offering was sent that was an, that enabled Paul to go full-time with his ministry and not be a tent maker anymore. And then Timothy brought a good report about the church in Thessalonica. And remember, Thessalonica is where the Jews formed a mob, Uh, instigated a riot and he had to be smuggled out of town and now he gets a report hey the church is doing well the church is doing good so God gave him physical support and boosted the morale so God gave him friends gave him moral support physical support number three God gave them local converts local converts leaders such as Titus Justice who we find out in Corinthians is also named Gaius. Crispus, also mentioned in today's passage. And then Stephanus, who's mentioned in Corinthians, not mentioned here. These are all leaders, prominent people in the city that got saved fairly quickly, and then Paul baptized them. They're mentioned in Corinth because he says, these are the only people I baptized. Everyone else that was baptized was baptized by somebody else, and he had a point to make there. But he had local converts, and then B many Corinthians, and notice it's it's no longer several Jews, a few Greeks, and a bunch of prominent women. Now it's many Corinthians, kind of an even mix among the people living there. Many Corinthians who heard and believed and were baptized. There were many of them. And we have the proper order of things happening. The ministry is happening like it's supposed to. He's sharing. Then people are believing. And in response, they're being baptized. They hear, they believe, and they're baptized. So there's converts, and it's kind of going the way it's supposed to. God provided a little bit of ministry success. Number four, God gave Paul clear instructions. Clear instructions are wonderful. It's always nice to know exactly what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, and how you're supposed to do it. We don't always get that. But at this point in time, when Paul needed... Instructions. God gave him clear instructions. He said, keep on speaking, for I am with you. Keep on speaking. Not just to the Gentiles, but to the Jews. Remember, he had said, I'm done with the Jews. I'm not talking to the Jews. And then Crispus get saved, and, and, and God says, hey, don't stop. Don't stop speaking. Don't get frustrated. Let it go. Keep speaking, for I am with you. I'm right there with you. They're rejecting me, not you. The... God says, no one will attack you here, for I am with you. Again, the I am with you sticks with all this. It's only said once in Scripture, but it's for all this. Keep on speaking, I am with you. No one will attack you here, for I am with you. He gave them 18 months. He says, I'm going to give you time. I'm going to give you time to speak and to build and to grow these people. 18 months. And then see. he says, I have many people in the city for you to reach still. And I am with you. So he gave him goals and he gave him a vision. So he met a social need. He met a physical need. He boosted the morale. He gave him ministry success to build on. He gave him goals and a vision. And number five, God gave Paul time. Eighteen months of unopposed ministry. So, beyond everything else, he gave them the opportunity. He gave them the time to do what he needed to do. So, Paul needed the freedom to be Paul. Paul needed to preach. Paul needed to explain. Paul needed to debate. Paul needed to give speeches. Paul needed to do everything that Paul was doing so that people could hear the gospel and respond to it, both Jews and Greeks. And God said, I'm here with you. I'm going to give you the time you need to do it. And I'm going I'm I'm to undiscourage you. So Paul rolls into town discouraged, expecting the worst. And God says, let me help you out here. So this is God doing what God does. So, transfer this to today. How does this work? What are we looking for? Let's ask the question as application. What will God do for you when living for him becomes difficult, tiresome, and even dangerous? Can living for him become difficult? Yes. None of you had to think real hard on that one. Living for Christ can become difficult. It can become difficult because of who you work with at work. It becomes become difficult because of who your neighbors are. It become, can become difficult because of finances. It can become difficult because God's going to ask you to do something outside of your comfort zone. Can it become tiresome? Yes. Week after week after week. You can start to look at it as week after week after week. It can become tiresome. It can, it can seem like things aren't happening very fast, or even at all. It can seem like all God wants you to do is wait. It can seem like you're not effective. Can it become dangerous? Sure. Right now, if you volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center, your life just became dangerous. Because there are organizations calling for riots and protests and attacks. on on these buildings and these organizations. So what you've been doing to serve God quietly in the trenches has now put you in the spotlight to possibly be under attack. Is it dangerous to be a Christian in our world today? Sure it is. You could lose your job. Um, People could attack your reputation. People could try to take advantage of you. All kinds of things. So when our life in ministry... When we're living for Him, when it becomes difficult, tiresome, and dangerous, what, what do we learn from this? Well, these things. Number one, He, God, will bring into your life friends who will encourage and support you. Now, I wrote this down and I thought, well, that sounds kind of interesting. I don't know. I mean, how, is that really true or not? And I thought back, every place I've lived and served as a pastor, even when before I was a pastor, everywhere I've been, God has given me one or two friends that were closer than anyone else. I, I could go through the, the list and name them. And, and, I, and I, I still kind of know where they're at. I still kind of know what they're doing. I, I know who they are. But God gave me friends in ministry, in my church, that I could depend on, talk to, and, and have a social life with. Uh, Having lunch from time to time, having conversations, going to men's roundup together, being a part of this, being a part of that. And so I look back and I said, yeah, God has done that. Has he done it for others? And I look back at my wife's life and she's had friends in her life that have been very important and and are are still connected. Has God done that in other people's lives? Well, I got to say, yeah, I think he has. Maybe it, it might take a little reflection to look back and say, who did God put in my life to carry me through, to give me the encouragement so I didn't quit and I didn't give up and I didn't become discouraged? And, and I often say that what God's done in the past is the greatest indicator of what He's going to do in the future. And He gave Paul friends when Paul needed friends and He gave me friends when I needed friends and gave my wife friends when she needed friends. And I can even look back and see friends in my kids' life and, and maybe some friends in some of your lives. And I, and I say, well, God has been doing this. Why would he stop doing it? So I look ahead and I say, when I need friends, God will provide friends. And he'll provide good friends who will be there for me to pray, to encourage, to help. Number two, God will provide what is needed for you to continue in your ministry. If you need an assistant, he'll provide an assistant. If you need some materials, he'll provide the materials. If you need some finances, He'll provide the finances. If you need an opportunity or an open door, He'll provide the opportunity and open the door. I've seen this happen so many times that there's no question here. If God says, hey, I want you to do this, I'm really happy to proceed not having all the answers, but just waiting to see how God's going to do it and when God's going to do it. God will provide what is needed for you to continue to do your ministry. Let me say it differently. God will never ask you to do something He is not already willing and able to provide whatever is necessary for your success. He will never ask you to do something that you're going to fail at because He wasn't there for you. He will always provide what's needed. Number three, He will give you qualified and like-minded people to work with you. If if God is in a, in something, He's calling you to something, if people are needed, He'll provide them. You might be more amazed at how he connects you than the fact that they exist he'll give you people to work with number four, he'll give you the time it takes to get it done again, God's not going to ask you to do something that you can't accomplish because you don't have time he may ask you to rearrange your priorities he may, may ask you to step away from one thing in order to step into something else but if God's asking you to do it you don't have to say, do I have time You just need to say, where is this time going to be found? Where is it going to be carved out? What what does God want me to adjust? He's He's going to give you the friends you need. He's going to give you the provisions you need. He's going to give you the people you need. He's going to give you the time you need. But number five, he probably won't give you a golden ticket to escape the difficult times. I can't think of any time in my life that God ever said, hey, I'm going to let you sit this one out. Some hard stuff's going to happen, but you don't have to be involved. Um, there's going to be a struggle, but I'm going to set you up on vacation, give you a little island to live on. Um, you just you just go enjoy yourself while other people suffer. That's, that's never happened. It didn't happen for Paul. It didn't happen for Silas. It didn't happen for Stephen. It didn't happen for Peter or James or anyone else that we've read about in the book of Acts. It didn't happen for anyone after the book of Acts. God's not going to give us the golden ticket to escape. In our own lives, we can say, God will do what God does so that I can do what he's called me to do. Title of the sermon, God did what God does so Paul could do what Paul does. Well, God does for Dave what God does so that Dave can do what God's called him to do. Fill in your own name. God's called you to do something. He's going to make the provision. He's going to supply the needs so that you can be successful. That should be a great encouragement. It should alleviate a bunch of fears. I don't know if I'm good enough. Well, God called you, so you're good enough. I don't know if I know enough. Well, the Holy Spirit will help you know what you need to know because God called you. I don't know if I have enough resources. God will provide the resources because He called you. I don't I don't know if I have the time. Well, if you evaluate, God will help you find the time. It was was God, God, God and God, not you, you, you and you. It's God taking care of the issues so that you can be successful. And then let's go back to that phrase that he told Paul. For I am with you. For I am with you. As a believer, the Holy Spirit is inside of us. That's the most basic baseline God being with us at all times. But I think the implication is even greater here. Not only is the Holy Spirit in you, guiding you, helping you make decisions, helping you understand Scripture, but I am with you. I am supporting you. I am watching over you. I have your back. And when God calls us to move forward, He doesn't say, hey, you go, go, Uh, go, Uh, I'll, I'll be back here, you go. He says, come on, let's go together. I've got this under control. Just come on. Come with me. I am with you. So he not only provides the things and the people and the resources, he also provides himself. That should be great encouragement. There should be nothing to fear when God calls us to move forward. Whether it be to teach Sunday school, to work in the nursery, to join the youth group, to become a missionary, to become a pastor, to be a Sunday school teacher, whatever God calls us to do, If it's his calling, then all we need to say is, okay, let's go. Because he's with us, and he's going to meet our needs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who does what you do so that we can do what you've called us to do. Thank you for providing in so many ways the things we need. Even a friend to encourage us. I think that would probably be something we'd overlook if we were making the list. Thank you for that and everything else you do. Put in our hearts to be confident and to walk by faith and to know that you are with us and that with you by our side, we can't fail. And then give us a clear calling to follow. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.